welcome to the May 2018 edition of the RehabCast. This is the podcast of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, hosted by me, Dr. Ford Vox. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Tom Burns. He's a neuropsychologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and he's published an important new paper on youth sports concussion and sleep in the May issue. But first, a few news briefs. Don't miss an incredible essay by Dartmouth physician Brendan Riley, writing about his brother's 18-month medical sojourn through 19 different facilities, following what Dr. Riley describes as a fender-bender car accident. You see, Kenneth, as he calls him in the essay, I'm not really sure if that's his brother's real name, has bipolar disorder. And thanks to that diagnosis, he first went to a psychiatric hospital and various medical complications land him back and forth in an acute hospital with five different acute rehabilitation facilities in between, all of which managed to miss Kenneth's tetraplegia. The essay is truly surreal, and it does a fine job of explaining the horrors of our siloed and blinkered medical system down to the level of the way different institutions in the same building can't work with each other due to inane rules about what constitutes inpatient or outpatient care. The essay is titled, The Best Medical Care in the World, and it's in the May 3rd issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Stroke Care Guidelines, published in the March issue of the journal Stroke and released online back in January, are already having large sections rescinded. One of the controversies included the way that the new guidelines dealt with dysphagia, something very near and dear to the rehabilitation community. Uh, The guidelines weighted screening for dysphagia lowly despite all the practical benefits clinicians see every day. The American Heart Association, which commissioned the guidelines, has pulled back that section of the document along with several others. The guidelines had a laser-like focus on evidence for outcome benefit And there's simply not enough randomized controlled trial data for many of the rather basic ingredients of preventing aspiration pneumonia. But I'm not sure who wants to conduct or what patient would want to participate in a trial where one arm of patients don't get screened for dysphagia. Now this latest guidelines battle is part of an all too common tug of war between evidence-based medicine and our overwhelming lack of good quality data for some of the rather fundamental things that clinicians do. In some cases, guidelines can end up looking absurd and produce documents no clinician ethically thinks they should follow. The AHA expects the writing committee, which it has reconvened, to put forth clarified versions of the deleted sections this summer. The state of Kansas asked the Trump administration to approve a draconian new Medicaid measure that it had in mind limiting Medicaid coverage to three years for working-age, non-disabled adults. After three years, you'd be done, with no more access for the rest of your lifetime. Now, CMS Administrator Seema Verma decided against that proposal. She said, quote, We seek to create a pathway out of poverty, but we also understand that people's circumstances change, and we must ensure that our programs are sustainable and available to them when they need and qualify for them. A ray of sunshine, I suppose. For many patients in Kansas, this measure would have represented a death sentence. 
The administration is, however, allowing Kansas to put in place a work requirement. Kansas's governor, Dr. Jeff Collier, is a plastic surgeon, and he said, while we will not be moving forward with lifetime caps, we are pleased that the administration has been supportive of our efforts to include a work requirement in our Medicaid waiver. This important provision will help improve outcomes and ensure that Kansans are empowered to achieve self-sufficiency. Now they say the states are laboratories of democracy. I just suppose some laboratories work with more toxic ingredients than others. Now it's time for our featured interview. We're talking with Dr. Tom Burns, Director of Neuropsychology and Chief of Psychology at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at Scottish Rite. Dr. Burns and his colleagues at CHOA have published on assessment of sleep quality and sleep disturbances during recovery from sports-related concussion in youth athletes. That's in the journal's May issue. Dr. Burns, thanks for joining me on the rehab cast today. Thanks so much. Now, you've been at Children's there for quite a while now. I'm curious how your practice has changed, and certainly there's a lot more attention now to sports concussion. Uh, how has that influenced your practice? Sure. I've been uh, at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta for 23 years. I started out on the traumatic brain injury unit and working mostly with severe head trauma. Uh, about 10 years into it, I shifted in the middle stages there, and I did surgical epilepsy. Uh, cases and was involved primarily with brain tumors and uh, intractable epilepsy. Um, more recently, in the last five years, I've kind of shifted back uh, to the brain injury world and I've, I've been involved with uh, concussion. Uh, I became the, the medical director for concussion research at Children's. And over the past few years, I've been uh, pursuing some grant funding and building a team uh, mostly they, we have a pretty strong clinical team. There's 14 neuropsychologists here. Uh, so we've been adding uh, the researchers. The last three hires have been people that have been involved with uh, research. So uh, this paper was on sleep was uh, part of a bigger study. We uh, had a few fellows involved in this as well as some faculty that, that joined on at the hospital. Uh, and and the, the issue of sleep came up kind of after some of the other studies that we did in looking at development and concussion. Yeah, and, and to tackle uh, sleep, you are using part of this kind of larger uh, uh, data set of impact-tested uh, athletes pre- and post-concussion. And um, it looks like you've got another paper out recently in the Journal of uh, Child Neurology on the effects of uh, developmental age on symptom reporting. Is that using the same data set as well? It is. It was part of the same study. Uh, for the most part, we, we have a very strong sports medicine program at the hospital. And it encompasses about 30 high school football teams uh, initially. And now those tra and there's a trainer associated with each one of those schools. And those trainers are able to give the impact test and to monitor the kids, both baseline and then after a concussion. Uh, they've expanded to testing, uh, for the most part, the, the athletic program. So the girls are involved, the boys are involved. Uh, so part of, for example, in this sleep study, the majority were football players, but there was cheerleaders with flyer injuries and there was volleyball players and soccer players. So we're now getting a bigger cohort of both boys and girls and multiple sports. So 
Yeah, it's very interesting how diverse uh, your your crew is there. You even have tennis players, and uh, yeah, there's a lot a lot of the studies that you see is, is all in one particular sport. This is nice because it's kind of more realistic for uh, what people are actually seeing out there in practice. The the diversity. Now, of course, there's there's a lot of work out there these days that's really trying to drill to, to drill down on protracted uh, symptoms after concussion, and uh, of course, this study may help potentially pick out, you know, who's going to have uh, the most trouble. Uh, to do that, uh, it is looking at this impact data in particular. Let's start out with, I mean, certainly most people in the field, probably most people listening to this podcast are going to be familiar with impact. Give us a brief update on where does impact stand um, amongst, uh, you know, other competitors and kind of uh, how, how do you view it and kind of what else is available uh, uh, on the market. Obviously, it's perhaps the one with the strongest body of, of research uh, behind it. Sure. We, uh, we have been involved with impact for over many years. Uh, it's been a, it's, it's been a tool that we've used not only with the orthopedic group, but then neuropsychology has also used it. Um, the nice thing about it is we've been able to do comparative studies where we see somebody before they have the concussion and then thereafter. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a computerized assessment that can evaluate, verbal and visual memory, as well as uh, visual motor skills and reaction time. And those four subscales are typically what contribute to kind of a total score that we look at how affected somebody is by a concussion. And we, we did a study before these two that you've uh, uh, referenced today, and that was a functional MRI study that we did uh, in coordination with Georgia Tech. In that study, we looked at advanced neuroimaging and we used the impact as well. Um, surprisingly, we didn't. the the most The most uh, significant findings we found were from the self-report of symptoms, um, and that's what these last two studies, uh, in terms of development and sleep, have focused on. Um, because we didn't find as much of the neurocognitive uh, differences as we did with how they were reporting and the subjective side of it. Yeah, uh, that is so fascinating in, in the concussion world. Now, yeah, you're, you're looking at this uh, post-concussive symptom scale, 22 uh, self-report items. Uh, that's, that's the one that uh, IMPACT uh, incorporates. Do you, do you think that that is uh, you know, the, the best scale or can kind of consider the, the gold standard post-concussive symptom scale? Uh, there's, I, I'd probably say there's two strengths to it, and then there's one weakness that we mentioned in the article. The, the strengths of it are it covers um, a wide variety of areas, from things like headache and cognitive dysfunction to sleep and then some neuropsychological variables. And they do it in 22 items. So it's, it's fairly easy to administer. Uh, you can get an idea of where uh, the, the athlete is functioning. The other thing I like about it is there's a seven-point Likert scale, so you can kind of grade the level of uh, impairment that the, that the adolescent or child is reporting. Uh, the future areas, though, are the areas that I would have liked to have um, looked at after we did the study was if you take any one of those variables it would be nice to have, obviously, more information. And on the sleep subtest, there's three questions. So we analyzed all three of those questions. But you can use uh, different instruments now. In fact, one of the instruments um, that we were interested in, we've been looking at now, is the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. And that's actually uh, one of the, one of the uh, inventories that's been out of probably in the same 
uh, academic setting, uh, impact is located in Pittsburgh. So it's probably out of that same group looking at similar variables. But it's a much more in-depth look at sleep. Um, so certainly after you raise these questions about just different developmental response to sleep uh, and different uh, neuropsychological variables, it would be nice to get more information. Of course, that's a direction we might go in. Yeah, and of course your study is one of many that's confirming the, the great importance of sleep uh, to concussive recovery and therefore perhaps it warrants the extra time involved and effort involved in really drilling down on that symptom subset. Before we get into the results uh, uh, of your civic study too much, uh, tell us a little bit about you know kind of what we already know about the importance uh, of sleep. It seems, uh, I'll just mention that you, you did cite one study that showed there were significant neurocognitive measurable differences in kids who got uh, just less than, than seven hours of sleep or not, which seemed you know, quite profound. Even as, as an adult, you know, I certainly would feel full, fully rested with, uh, with less than, than seven. It's uh, easier to forget how much sleep uh, teenagers need. Uh, and uh, so uh, t- give us a little bit of an overview of that literature. Yeah, so the, the study you were referencing came out of Nashville. It was McClure and Solomon and their colleagues. And they found that the cognitive deficits were worse when you had less than uh, seven hours sleep. What was surprising to them is when they looked at even the baseline, that the kids that had less than seven hours did poor on the baseline to begin with. Um, there was also uh, multiple studies, some with, uh, for example, uh, that has showed with increased sleep symptoms that oftentimes that can that predicted that you'd have a longer post-concussive recovery. So certainly if, if you see somebody that's having sleep problems early on, um, we thought that, that this would be the next uh, step to looking at that. Um, in the 90s, in the early 1990s, there was a study, Pilcher had a study that looked at college students and he was, he was trying to look at whether or not poor sleep would influence how they did on testing. And as you wouldn't, you're probably not surprised that the, the kids that didn't get much sleep and did all-nighters didn't do as well on the tests. So the, the unique part of this study was to take a look at the sleep, not before the event, but look at the, how they did after the concussion. So the, the aspects of sleep that we decided to look at was not only the quantity or the hours of sleep, but also if there was disturbances, like they were waking up or they couldn't get to sleep or they were either getting too much or too little sleep. Um, so that's kind of yeah. that was the backdrop for where we wanted to go with it, uh, and then obviously to to look at if it contributes to the 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 athlete having continued problems because they can't sleep after the concussion. Definitely. Now one of the one of the things that pops out at me first uh, looking at uh, your study population is the high rate of concussion in the first place out of that one thousand seven hundred eighty four athletes. The the vast majority it looks like are concussed. Uh, uh, one thousand two hundred and six versus only 578 who didn't sustain a concussion. Do you, do you think that is that typical and, and representative of what you think is happening out there? There It is, but I also think uh, the awareness of concussion has increased. Every six months, it seems like it, it feels like it doubles. We get more and more, um, especially the younger children now, because I think a lot of people are concerned, whether that's the NFL sensitivity and the topic there or uh, with CTE even, or um, just people being aware of uh, kids getting hit on the head. Um, but our database, we have the majority of them are baselines, and then you have a much smaller percentage that actually go on to become concussed. So uh, that's one of the reasons we start off with a huge uh, number, and then we kind of boil it down. Part of the things that dropped some people out of this study, too, is if they didn't have full data. 
Some of the kids are at the schools may not have completed how many hours they slept the night before, or, and if they didn't do that, they were dropped out of it. Sure. Now, uh, so certainly the study uh, centers on understanding the difference between uh, these measures of sleep quantity and sleep disturbances, both, both self-reported. One is, I gather, a single report measure estimating how much you slept, and sleep disturbances is based on three different symptoms. Would you tell us about those? Sure. So the, the, the basis on the sleep disturbance was you can't fall asleep, and then the two others are just either you're sleeping more than usual or you're sleeping less than usual. And like I said earlier, those are pretty broad topics. Uh, it certainly gets at the quality of their, of their sleep, but I'm sure we can, we can get a lot more information with, with other inventories in the future. Yeah. And you did address this in your paper, but I'm kind of still fascinated by it because I just think, you know, I, perhaps we underestimate uh, ourselves thinking back of what we were like as kids. But I, I would be hard-pressed to imagine that I was, would be accurate if somebody asked me the next day how much I slept, what my sleep quality was. Uh, but, uh, but studies have been done and show that the, the kids are actually somewhat, somewhat accurate, certainly more so than, than their parents, right? Yes, they have been. Uh, they've been pretty accurate, and in fact, the parents typically uh, think they're getting more sleep than they are, which probably doesn't su- surprise you with the technology age and kids on phones and so forth. Uh, it, it's interesting. One of the things we thought about um, here is is possibly using some technology, these uh, actimetry, which is mm-hmm. similar to what you see on an iWatch or on some of these. Uh, sports kind of watches that can measure your sleep. And, and I think there is a, uh, you know, for the future or the, the future studies, that might be a great way to um, objectify the exact phases of sleep and to look at it in more detail. Well, let's get into some of your findings. Uh, certainly, they seem to be split along these two prongs of sleep quantity versus disturbances. On the sleep quantity first, uh, there's some interesting findings there. It seems that one thing certainly leads to another. Uh, poor sleep quality will generate more sleep disturbances, but there's not really a correlation with the neurocognitive scores. Uh, so what's your thinking about the usefulness or not of sleep quantity? Right. I, I think the the thing to remember is we're looking at this after the concussion. So the first time point we looked at was within uh, seven days. So we, and that was really more of a scheduling issue than anything else. That mm-hmm. if somebody was concussed, let's say in an event over the weekend, we could get them in the following week. And um, so that ranged from anywhere from a day or two after the concussion to uh, up to about seven is when we we cut it off. And then we brought them back again, close to about thirty days post injury, which is about twenty one days after the initial one. So what was and and usually they were pretty uh, in tune with the sleep because they had gone through. Uh, you know, an interview and they, they had been uh, tested. So they, they were pretty much um, on top of the, the reporting. But the, the big issues that seemed consistent, whether it was at time one or time two, was the, co- the migraine issue, mostly with the headaches, um, to a lesser extent, the, the neuropsych variables, but certainly the cognitive symptoms they would report. And what I found interesting is they're reporting the cognitive symptoms, but yet for example, something like a cognitive symptom would be memory. But then when we gave them a visual memory test and a verbal memory test, they, they fared pretty well uh, compared to their baseline. So uh, that, that raises a whole other issue of whether or not it's, it's in their mind of how their perception of their sleep impacted them when, in fact, they might be able to get the resources together enough to do well enough on the test. 
Now, you all appear a bit happier with your findings on sleep disturbance, at least with how they're, they're specifically correlated to, to concussive symptoms. Characterize that for me. Yeah, so the, they seem, I mean, it, instead of a number of how many hours, now you're looking at that they know they're just having problems. And um, that was directly related. And, the, and the, the significance was, you know, we were looking at a 0.05 um, alpha and they were at the point oh 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 one. It was very very significant that the, of the problems they were having. So and you know we tried to to uh, control for things like their gender or the previous concussions, but overall, I mean the 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 poor sleep generally equates to poor performance. Sleep disturbances correlate with other symptoms, but measure performance as well. Perhaps I misread. I was thinking that the testing didn't seem to correlate as much, but more so the symptoms. That's correct. So the neurocognitive would be the visual memory, the reaction time, and they, they did fairly well on that. Um, they didn't show significant differences on either time one or time two, nor did they different, uh, differentiate themselves from controls. Um, what we did find with the sleep disturbance side is that regardless of whether you were concussed or not, even if you were a control patient in a baseline and you had poor sleep the night before, you were still going to do poorly on the test. So that raises the issue of when were the importance of the baseline. If you're testing a child during finals and they haven't slept much and you bring them in the next day after a final and try and do a, a baseline cognitive assessment, it's likely it's going to be impacted by that studying that was done the night before. Very good. Now, um, uh, there's some findings here with regards to uh, visual memory that's interesting as distinguished from other uh, cognitive aspects and th that where it's age-dependent in the, in the lower and upper age groups. And it seems there's some research about the sensitivity of visual memory uh, in particular. Uh, tell us about that background and your findings there. Sure. We, this, is, this was the first study that we started to look at uh, developmental ages to uh, understand the recovery from a concussion a little better. There was some previous work in, the, uh, in a journal in 2015 that used the same age ranges, and we, we felt like uh, the reasoning behind it was, was, was good. And basically how that worked was they looked at middle school children between the ages of 10 to 13, and then we separated out the 14 to 15-year-olds and the 16 to 17-year-olds. And that was basically, when you're looking at sports, Oftentimes it's ninth and 10th grade, so it's JV versus varsity. And then of course we had greater than 17, that was the smallest group we had, but those are kind of the older kids that probably seniors in high school and still on the varsity team. Surprisingly, we, we did not predict that there was gonna be these differences, but for some reason the youngest group, the middle schoolers, and then the 17 and older, or the uh, older than 17 group, both did poor on that visual memory testing. Uh, and that, that was surprising. Now, there was some previous work that looked at sleep disturbance um, in a younger cohort and, and also some in adolescents and showed that visual memory was lower. So it, our results did coordinate with some of that. But the, the group that, the, the previous study, that study looked at just adolescents in general. And what we found is this middle group of 14 to 16 really didn't show um, or they, they weren't showing the lower visual memory scores. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure we completely understand that. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the issues we wondered about was it, could there be some reporting bias? Uh, but that didn't seem to be the case when we, when we controlled for those factors. So, um, 
But clearly the one of interest to us is the middle schoolers from a developmental perspective. Um, and I think it, it may highlight the fact that the younger children are in fact developmentally in a different stage than, for example, the high schoolers. Um, while that may not completely explain why the greater than 17-year-olds had similar problems, um, it does support some of the pre- previous research that has shown that these young adolescents struggle on the visual side. Uh, yeah, and perhaps you could argue that there are just kind of uh, more other kind of unusual events occurring in, at, the, at the lower end of that scale and the upper scale in terms of uh, life events and brain development or something. Maybe the people in the, in the middle are a little bit more static. I mean, everybody's changing in, in the mid-teenage years as well, but uh, I don't know. Just speculating there. Or maybe that the adolescents are uh, used to not having a whole lot of sleep. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, as far as, you know, kind of uh, uh, what to make of all this, um, you know, it occurs to me that uh, I guess uh, like a lot of lot of research, um, you know, there's kind of always this uh, chicken or egg type uh, scenario, you know, that the question of, you know, well, well poor sleep could be um, uh, or sleep itself it could be a marker of neurological health. You know, it takes a healthy brain uh, to have good sleep. Uh, of course, at the same time, it, it really takes good sleep to maintain a healthy brain. Um, so it's kind of like a chicken and egg type of thing. You need, you need both. Um, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, I guess that gets at the, the kind of philosophical question of, you know, exactly what, what we're measuring here. I think you're proving that it's clinically, that's clinically useful, I suppose. We don't know what point uh, in the kind of neuropathology it is, you know, where the sleep is, is measuring you know, certainly stand in for something else about brain health in general rather than the underlying fundamental thing. But, but what, are, what are your thoughts uh, about kind of where in the continuum uh, of pathology we're, what we're measuring with sleep? I, I would agree 100%. I believe the sleep uh, in looking at this, when you take a step back, you realize that sleep is, um, is one of many factors that are contributing to how someone adjusts or how they perform. And I think it's something was overlooked in large part um, in the past. I think it's it's receiving a little bit more in the research communities, and certainly uh, with the doctors that are that are testing with the computerized assessments are starting to pay attention to these factors. For us, it's also raised a question about the different developmental stages that uh, kids and adolescents go through, and how they we may need to start looking at those. We the the database that we started with was was very large, um, and one of the on that second article you talked about in child neurology, one of the things we tried to do with that to deal with this issue is um, we looked at hierarchical linear modeling, which enables you to look at multiple variables at the same time um, without raising too much of an error factor, and in doing that we found very. Um, we found that certain tests that we gave were much more sensitive at different time periods, which raises the question of not having just one test for a large, large range of kids and adults and instead having specific tests. So I think that's a direction we'll probably continue in. The entire field of sleep and TBI is definitely fertile ground, and I think you all clearly have some good ideas to carry it forward. Uh, those actigraphy monitors in particular, they're becoming available on everything now, uh, certainly smartwatches and the like. Uh, hopefully you can start to access that kind of data, but it's going to be a real challenge to deal with the numbers that you're talking about in a trial like this. 
Uh, it seems like, though, you're on the verge of really influencing things clinically, like maybe the impact scale itself, and to beefing up those sleep query sections. Um, hopefully, ultimately, we're going to get a bit, lot better at you know identifying uh, who's going to have a protracted recovery. Certainly, also a hard question trying to figure out what to do about that. Well, you know, I applaud your work. Uh, a lot of new, interesting things to think about. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to add before we sign off? No, I think we covered. I'm looking forward to, to uh, continuing with the research, and uh, thank you for having us on. Thanks for coming on, Tom. It's great to feature the study, and thanks for publishing in the archives. And that's it for this May issue of the Rehab Cast, brought to you by the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Thanks for listening, and tune in next month for more from the world of rehab. podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Dallas September 30th through October 2nd, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.